Shireen is a writer, broadcaster and academic who started off her career with a doctorate in molecular immunology from the University of Cambridge. She's an award-winning journalist who's worked for The Economist and Al Jazeera English and a former vice chair of the UN's Global Commission on HIV and the Law, as well as a TED Global Fellow. Like many Australians, um, she has uh, one parent from, well, not, not specifically this, like many Australians, she's got a, a, a mixed background, one parent from Egypt, the other from Wales, but grew up in Canada and now divides her time between London and Cairo. She's here to talk to us tonight about sex in the Citadel, her look at sexuality in Egypt and the surrounding countries. It's a collection of fascinating stories, experiences, extraordinary people, combined with astute social analysis and cultural background. For us, I think it provides a rare glimpse behind the bedroom doors of a culture that we're absolutely fascinated by, but curiously ignorant of. So tonight is the chance for us, those of us who are here at least, to remedy that ignorance. Shireen El Feki. Great. Well, it's, it's wonderful to be here, and my thanks to, to Anne and the Sydney Opera House for uh, this marvelous opportunity. So let me tell you about my experiences in Morocco. I was in Casablanca not so long ago, and I met with a young unmarried mother called Faiza. Faiza showed me photos of her infant son, and she told me the story of his conception, the pregnancy, and delivery. It was a truly remarkable tale, but Faiza saved the best for last. She said to me, you know, Dr. Shireen, I am a virgin. I have two medical certificates to prove my virginity. Welcome to the modern Middle East, where two millennia on from the coming of Christ, virgin births are still a fact of life. <laughs> Faiza's story is one of hundreds I've heard over the past five years traveling across the Arab region talking to people about sex, what they do, what they don't, what they think, and why. Now, I know, depending on your perspective, this might sound like a dream job or a highly dubious occupation. But for me, it's something else altogether. As Anne mentioned, I am half Egyptian, I am Muslim, but I grew up in Canada very far from my Arab roots. It was really only of the events of 2011, that, that tragic day, that really prompted me to want to understand more about the Arab region. That I chose sex as my lens I know is a little unusual, but that comes from my professional background. I trained as an immunologist, and my first job at The Economist magazine was uh, writing about healthcare, and in particular, writing about the global HIV-AIDS epidemic. And because of my connection to the Arab region, I became interested in what is happening around HIV in that part of the world. Now, I have to tell you that we don't have much HIV in the general population in the Arab region, but our rates are increasing. And in fact, the Arab world is one of only two regions in the world where HIV is on the rise. And to look at HIV, you need to look at sex because the taboos around sex are one of the major stumbling blocks to really effectively addressing this epidemic. But beyond sex, looking at sexuality, which is about more than attitudes and behaviors, but its values and beliefs and its fears and its fantasies, it tells you so much about a society. Because what is happening in our intimate lives is shaped by forces on a bigger stage in politics and economics and religion and tradition and gender and generations. And at the end of the day, if you really want to know a people, you start by looking inside their bedrooms. Across the Arab region, the only socially accepted context for sex is marriage. And it's not any old marriage. It has to be approved by your family, approved by religion, and registered by the state. If you don't get married, you enter into what could best be described as a state of suspended adolescence. It's very hard to move out of your parents' place, particularly if you're a woman. You're not supposed to be having sex, and you're definitely not supposed to be having children. 
This is what I call the citadel in my book. This is an impregnable fortress which resists any alternative, uh, any, any other option. And around this citadel is a vast field of taboo against premarital sex, against homosexuality, abortions, condoms, masturbation, you name it. FISA is living proof of this. Her virginity statement was not a piece of wishful thinking. Women are expected to be virgins on their wedding night, and by that I mean you are expected to turn up with your hymen intact. There is a saying in Egypt about this, the honor of a girl is like a match. It only lights once. And this honor is not an individual concern. This is not a private matter. This is a This is a question of concern for your family, about your family's honor, your family's reputation, and in particular, the reputation of the men folk in your family. And so women and their relatives will go to tremendous lengths to try to preserve this tiny piece of anatomy, whether it's trying to keep girls on the straight and narrow, as some believe, by performing female genital mutilation, There are all sorts of types of virginity testing and also trying to restore a reasonable facsimile of virginity through hymen repair surgery. FISA chose a different route. She chose to have non-vaginal sex, but she became pregnant all the same. Only FISA didn't know it because there's so little sexuality education in schools and there's so little communication around sex in the family. When Fiza's condition became hard to hide, her mother helped her flee her father and her brothers. Honor killings are a real threat for untold numbers of women across the Arab region. But when Fiza ended up in Casablanca at a hospital, the man who offered to help her actually tried to rape her instead. And she said to me, I screamed to him, never touch me, I am a virgin. And when I delivered my baby, she said to me, it was he who was in my head, a face that I could never forget. I have to say that FISA is not alone. In researching Sex in the Citadel, I've seen plenty of trouble in and out of the fortress. So, for example, there are legions of young men in the Arab world who can't afford to get married because marriage has become very expensive as countries in the region have opened their economies to the full flood of global capitalism. Weddings are now an exercise in conspicuous consumption, and men are expected to bear the burden of costs. But you have to remember that getting a job in the Arab world is very hard. Youth unemployment is running at 30-40% in some countries, and this is one of the major drivers of the Arab uprising. Now, the Prophet Muhammad enjoined us as Muslims to be a chaste before marriage, and he suggested that we fast until we could marry. But the Prophet was not thinking that we should fast until our early 30s, which is now the average age of marriage for men in some countries in the Arab region. Another group who are outside the citadel are career women. These are women who are educated, dynamic, successful. They want to get married, but they can't find a husband because they defy gender expectations. Or as one female doctor in Tunisia put it to me quite clearly, the women are becoming more and more open in our societies, but the man, he is still at the prehistoric stage. And then there are men and women who cross the heterosexual line. They have sex with their own sex, or they have a different gender identity. They're on the receiving end of laws which punish their activities, even punish their appearance. And they face a daily struggle with social stigma, family despair, and religious fire and brimstone. There are also female sex workers who really are one of the most visible faces of sex in the Arab world, but also one of the most hidden populations, terribly stigmatized, really in terrible straits in in many countries and capitals of the region. It's not all rosy in the marital bed either. I've met plenty of couples who are looking for better sex lives, but are really at a loss of how to achieve it particularly wives who are afraid of being seen as bad women 
if they show some spark in the bedroom for all their husband's assurances to the contrary. But again, as my Egyptian grandmother used to say, a woman who trusts a man is like a woman who stores water in a sieve. Now, it's not as if the Arab region has a monopoly on sexual hang-ups. One of the most interesting aspects of having published Sex in the Citadel is hearing from readers from around the world, receiving Facebook postings and tweets and emails from readers across Latin America, for example, and across Asia saying, we recognize the problems you talk about. We face these in our own society. And within the Arab region, although we don't yet have a Kinsey-like report to tell us exactly what's happening inside bedrooms, it's pretty clear that something is going wrong in the sexual lives of people in the region. We're talking about double standards for men and women, sex as a source of shame, and family control, which is limiting individual choices. And there is this huge gap between appearance and reality, what people are doing and what they're willing to admit to, and a general reluctance to move beyond private whispers to a serious and sustained public discussion of change, be it in the media or in schools or in government policy. As one doctor in the region summed it up for me, here sex is the opposite of sport. Football, everybody talks about it, but hardly anyone plays it. But sex, everybody's doing it, but nobody wants to talk about it. Now, that being said, let me read you a short uh, uh, translation uh, from uh, one Arabic book. I want to give you a piece of advice which, if you take it, will make you happy in life. When your husband reaches out for you, when he seizes a part of your body... Sigh deeply and look at him lustily. When his penis penetrates you, talk flirtatiously and move yourself in harmony with him. Now, hot stuff, huh? (laughs) Now, these handy hints might sound like something out of the joy of sex or you porn. In fact, they come from a 10th century Arabic book called the Encyclopedia of Pleasure, which covers sex from aphrodisiacs to zoophilia and everything in between. The encyclopedia is just one in a very long line of Arabic erotica, and much of it was written by religious scholars. Going right back to the Prophet Muhammad, there is a rich tradition in Islam of talking frankly about sex, not just its pains, but also its pleasures, and not just for men, but also for women. Today, those days are long gone. It's very hard to find such free and frank and informative advice about sex in Arabic, particularly if you're a woman. In fact, today's sexual landscape in Egypt and many of its neighbors in the Arab region looks a lot like Europe and America on the brink of the sexual revolution. And while the West has opened up around sex over the past few decades, it is as if Arab societies have been moving in the opposite direction. In Egypt and many of its neighbors, this is part of a wider closing down on political, economic, social, and cultural thought. And it's the product of a very complex historical process and one which has gained ground with the rise of Islamic conservatism since the late 1970s. Just say no is how conservatives around the world deal with any challenge to the sexual status quo. In the Arab region, they brand these attempts as a Western conspiracy to undermine uh, traditional Arab and Islamic values. But in fact, what's at stake here is one of their most powerful tools of control, sex wrapped up in religion. But you only have to look back at history, and you don't need to take a glance back a thousand years. You only need to look to the days of our fathers and our grandfathers to see that there have been times of greater pragmatism and tolerance and a willingness to consider alternative interpretations. Be it abortion or condoms or even the incendiary topic of homosexuality, it is not black and white as conservatives would have us believe. 
On this, as, as so many matters in uh, Islam, there are at least 50 shades of gray. Now, in researching sex in the citadel, I have met scores of men and women who are busy exploring that spectrum. I've met sexologists who are trying to help couples find greater happiness in their sexual lives, pioneers who are managing to get sex education into schools, often in very conservative communities, small groups of men and women, lesbian, gay, transgendered, and transsexual, who are reaching out to their peers with online initiatives and real-time, real-life support groups. There are women and increasingly men who are starting to speak out and fight back against sexual violence uh, in the home and on the streets. There are groups that are trying to help female sex workers uh, protect themselves from HIV AIDS and other occupational hazards. And there are NGOs that are trying to find a place for unwed mothers like FISA, uh, help them to find jobs, get a place to live, reconcile with their families, and critically keep their kids. Now, we're not talking about a sexual revolution here. This is not how change, social change, happens in the Arab region through dramatic breaks with the past. We are talking about a sexual evolution. There are these wonderful innovators, whether they're working at the level of changing national law or community projects or even trying to challenge taboos in their personal lives that they are looking to other parts of the world, not just the West, but the global South, and they are adopting uh, lessons and they are adapting them to local conditions. They are trying to forge their own path, not just follow in one blazed by another. As one gay man in Cairo, who's on the sharp end of police abuse and everyday discrimination, put it to me, I want my rights, Shireen, but only within the framework of an Egyptian society. If I go for this gay pride, what am I really asking for? Go and kiss a man in the street? No, 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 this is an Islamic country. I don't want that. But I want respect. That's all I want, not because I am gay, but because I am a human being. But in that one small word, respect, lies an extensive wish list when it comes to sexual life. That respect includes the right to control our own bodies and to access the information and services that will help us lead happy, pleasurable, and satisfying sexual lives. It's the right to express our ideas, to choose our partners, to marry of our own free will, to decide to be sexually active or not, to decide to have children or not, all this without violence, discrimination, or coercion, and that is a tall order anywhere in the world. Now, we are very far from this in the Arab region. So much needs to change. Law, education, economics, the list goes on and on, and it is the work of a generation, at least. But it begins with the journey that I myself have made, asking hard questions of received wisdoms. Now, there are three red lines in the Arab world, topics you're not supposed to challenge in word or deed. One of these is politics. But since the events of 2011 and the upheavals we're seeing in Egypt and many countries of the Arab region, that red line of politics has been well and truly crossed. The second red line is religion. But now that politics and Islam are connected in many countries, as we've seen with the rise and also fall of groups like the Muslim Brotherhood, people are starting to ask hard questions of religion. For example, the role of Islam in public life. So that third red line is sex. And it may seem something of a luxury in this time of turmoil to talk about sex, to challenge taboos, and to seek alternatives. But the personal and the political are intimately entwined. If we do not achieve justice and freedom and dignity and equality and privacy and autonomy in our private lives, in our sexual lives, we will find it very hard to achieve them in public life. 
At the end of the day, sex is both a mirror of the conditions that have led to the ongoing turmoil in the Arab region, and it will be a measure of the change that millions are hoping to see in the years to come. Shireen, that was uh, a wonderful introduction to some of the particular issues that you talk about in the book. But before we start, I think there are a couple of background issues that are important to, to talk about a little bit. One of which is that a lot of um, the time, a lot of the stories, a lot of the evidence, a lot of the information comes from Egypt and surrounding countries. But I just want you to tell us a little bit about the meaning of Egypt in the Arab world, how sig culturally significant it is and why? Well, Egypt is the pivot point of uh, the Arab world. It is the most populous country in the Arab region, and it has considerable cultural power, soft power, because its films and its soap operas uh, and its literature have spread far and wide in the Arab region. Now, what's interesting is when I started this book in 2007 and 2008, many people in the Arab region were not looking to Egypt. It had been written off as uh, a sinkhole, really, of uh, political oppression and uh, corruption and poverty and crumbling infrastructure and rising Islamism. Uh, and as uh, one taxi driver in Rabat, uh, Morocco, put it to me with sort of devastating simplicity, Egyptians, so egotistical, and for what? But what is most interesting is that since the events of 2011, the uh, fall of Mubarak, and most recently the fall of, of Morsi, that really Egypt has regained its ge geopolitical mojo. And what happens in Egypt matters not just for Egypt and not just for the Arab world as well, but as we've seen, it causes anxiety in uh, capitals around the world. So Egypt matters. Mm. I mean, I think it, it's interesting that we see it from here as a country, but really... It's as if it was a combination of the traditional public publishing centre, so somewhere like London and Hollywood rolled into one. Well, it's certainly the population of Cairo uh, during the day is about 30 million. It feels as if it's London and, and New York and Sydney all put together. <laughs> and the other real building block, I think, of the book is the notion of what family means um, in, in the Arab region. The very diff different significance of family and the role it plays in sexual mores um, and where power sits in families. So I wondered if you could just talk a little bit about what family means. Well, it's very interesting because the patriarchy is alive and well in Egypt and across the Arab world. Just because we have got rid of the father of the nation uh, in uh, Mubarak does not mean that the father of your family doesn't still hold sway. And I very often asked young people whom I met in Tahrir Square, uh, does uh, this political upheaval make any difference to the way you interact in the family? And it was interesting, younger kids, for example, you see challenging their parents for, let's say, fewer chores or a bigger allowance in the spirit of, this is the revolution, I want my rights. But there are real limits to that, and it was really brought home to me in, um, in one young woman who is a real firebrand, and she was one of the very few individuals I interviewed who saw the connection between the political and the personal, and she's a 19-year-old literature student, but she can quote chapter and verse from Paris 68. Uh, and she loved to say to, to say to me, it is forbidden to forbid. Uh, and what was most interesting is I, I've quoted her in the book, and I gave her a copy, and she works in an NGO which is actually trying to defend freedom of expression. But she called me up and she said, Shireen, do you mind if the book is translated into Arabic that you don't actually put my name in it? Because I'm afraid my mother might read it. <laughs> so there is a disconnect between the, the personal and the political. And we don't yet have practical structures on the ground which recognize and respect individual rights. Although we have these constitutions that are being rewritten and laws being drafted, at the end of the day, for example, if I get into trouble, 
in in Cairo, I can't rely upon the police or a lawyer or the system to defend my rights as an individual. It's going to be a call to my uncle and a hope that he can use his influence to get me out of trouble. Now, I need to point out that my uncle, when I was writing this book, would say to me on an almost daily basis, Shireen, don't talk to people about politics or religion. Fortunately, he never told me not to talk to people about sex. Uh, but it does have real practical uh, Im implications. And, and again, this was brought home to me by another individual I interviewed who is an extremely articulate queer activist mm -hmm. in Beirut. And we were talking about the nature of sexual orientation and sexual identity. And she said to me, Shereen, what are you talking about your sexual rights, individual rights, sexual identity? I don't even have an individual identity. In the records of the state, I am registered as the daughter of my father. And if I were to marry, I would be the wife of my husband. How can you talk about me having a sexual identity, an individual identity? And it really brought it home to me. It's absolutely true. And I think that's something that um, for people who live in a country like Australia or in Canada, where that situation has changed one or two generations ago, um, that the family was your social welfare safety net, the family was where you looked to find a job, the family, you know, that, that was the source of all of those things that in some ways, um, you know, in, in a country like this, there are different ways of, of accessing those services, accessing services or government support. And that to look back to that, that stage where you cannot say, well, I'm going to move away from my family and if they don't like it, that's too bad because there is that complete not just the emotional ties, but also that financial and social dependence on that network. Absolutely, and I think there is a danger to look at the trajectory of mm. social and sexual change in, in, in the West and to think it, as I mentioned in my, mm. in my talk, that it's a path that has been blazed and, and other cultures are just going to follow along behind it. Uh, as I often make the analogy about the sexual revolution, that it, it, wasn't, uh, it wasn't a helicopter that took off from a land of taboo to a free air of, of liberty. It was more like one of those Hercules transporter planes, those big things that need a very long runway. And that runway was laid through hundreds of years of political, economic, and social change in, in the West. Now, arguably, we, we may or may not have a plane in the Arab region at the moment. We definitely haven't built that runway. And, and when we take off, I actually don't think we're going to be heading in, in, the same, in the same direction. But what I think is most interesting about the groups that I talk about in the book, and I really wanted to show in the book that this is not just about what's wrong in the Arab region. This is about what's right, how people are finding solutions and these solutions often look different, but they make sense. And what is most interesting is that these people who are forging uh, this path, when they do things differently, it's not out of ignorance. It's out of information. And I think it behooves those who are outside the region who want to help in that process to respect the different choices and different directions that people within the region are choosing to take. I know that's a very, the very interesting example you gave about the uh, gay activist really saying that, um, that they would be choosing a very different path, that it's not about... It doesn't really bear any resemblance to a, a Western version of, of gay liberation at all. And certainly there are tools which are yeah. used. For example, there is a very lively uh, presence on the Internet and uh, on Twitter and Facebook for uh, increasingly, for certainly for uh, what we call LGBT activists, but also reaching out to, to people who are not activists. They're just men and women trying to find their way um, and often reconcile their their. Their sexual desires with the, with their faith as well, uh, and so there are tools certainly that have been used by groups in the West, which are very valuable to the emerging efforts in the Arab region. But again, often they're used quite quite differently to 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 a, to a different effect. But it's still um, achieving what we are hoping to see, which is the ability to lead a happy and successful and pleasurable sexual life, free of of, of violence or coercion or discrimination. And I think also, and in the context of a social structure where family is important. So, you know, what you referred to was somebody leading um, a life where they were, as you say, able to express themselves sexually, but it didn't mean having said to their family, um, 
I know that you don't, you know, I, you don't approve of this, but I'm going to do it anyway. It means doing it in a way that was consistent with respecting their family and wanting that same respect in return, I guess. It's but it's quite difficult to achieve that because of the gaps in, in, in communication. Mm. What was interesting, FISA, the group that she eventually uh, reached, uh, is uh, one of uh, a number of excellent NGOs in Morocco, as I've said, that are helping, trying to help uh, to find a place for unmarried mothers. And it's very interesting that the woman who set up this NGO is, is, a, is a grandmotherly uh, type, and she's a real force of nature. And she, she said something which I heard time and time again, is that there just isn't any talk anymore in families about sex. I mean, mothers and daughters are not speaking. And this was not always the way in, in her own day, in her, in her grandmother's day, there was, there was more frankness in, in discussion. And we find this in research across the region that um, very often uh, parents who want to talk to their, their kids really feel in, inhibited. One of the projects I didn't uh, mention in my talk but really is incredibly innovative is actually run by a Palestinian woman living in Israel. It's called Montada Jansaneya. And it really has an incredibly, um, incredibly innovative uh, program in trying to promote sexuality education. And one of the things they found in getting sexuality education into schools, and these are highly conservative communities, um, is that the parents at first are very resistant uh, to the idea that their kids are going to be told, you know, the facts of life in such a frank fashion. And the belief generally is, oh, no, if we open their eyes, suddenly they'll be fornicating wildly. But what they found is that actually when they're able to get this into schools, the parents themselves then also want to have lessons. Because as one of them said, look, we don't want to look like an idiot in front of our kids. But what was also interesting is that she found that in improving the knowledge and the ease of both parents and children, it changed the whole dynamic of the family. She said, for example, after going through these workshops, the participants, husbands and wives, were actually able to be more physically demonstrative to each other. In many Arab in families, it's just unheard of that a husband and wife, a mother or father, would hug each other or kiss each other in front of the kids. And yet, in being able to do that, it changed the whole family dynamic, and the relations were better between the generations and within the generations. So it's very powerful if you can overcome these taboos in a way that is culturally acceptable with a bit of prodding. Um, it can change everything. Where do you think that increased inhibition has come from? It's a fascinating uh, topic and one which uh, a number of historians and social scientists have examined. If one looks at the long history of Arabic erotica, for example, it pretty well dries up around the 19th century. And it's not a coincidence that this is the time that one sees European colonization of many countries in the Arab region. And many historians have posited that, in a sense, a, a European morality comes to be um, uh, adopted, certainly by the classes um, of society which are in greatest contact mm. with the European colonizers. What's interesting is that this, this closing down is really accelerated by the rise of Islamic conservatism. Uh, Hassan al-Banna, for example, who founded the Muslim Brotherhood in the 1920s, uh, Egypt, said that uh, one of the reasons that Egypt had lost its way and had been colonized by the British is because it had deviated from what his interpretation of Sharia, the, the Islamic way, and part of that was the freedom that women enjoyed and this licentiousness in society. And if you then fast forward to really what we've seen in the past couple of decades since the late 1970s, which is a resurgence of Islamic conservatism, particularly Salafi Islam, of, uh, an ultra-conservative form. Um, that in itself is, interestingly, in Egypt, at any rate, connected, I think, to political repression. We have had decades of dictatorship. And these groups, these conservative Islamic groups, have done very well at, bringing, at attracting adherents, in part because they offered a form of civic engagement, that the government simply did not allow, and quite frankly, because they offered services that the government couldn't be bothered to provide, education, housing, health care. Now, what's the really interesting question mm. moving forward is that 
now that we have seen the rise and, and quite dramatic and rapid fall of a group uh, such as the Muslim Brotherhood, what is it going to mean for the, this Islamic conservatism moving, moving forward? And I would say watch this space. Mm, I think it's a very, obviously a very interesting time and uh, we might talk a little bit about that, that later, about what the future holds. Um, I have to say, Anna, that if I knew that, I might actually be running for president <laughs> next, next year in Egypt. Oh, I've, we, won't, we won't hold you to a definitive answer, just a little bit of, you know, enjoyable speculation, perhaps. Um, can we go back uh, to some, uh, to the beginning, I guess, to some of the beginnings, um, really thinking about the fact that in Islam, uh, sexuality in marriage in, you know, for, for, for a very long time until, you know, till, till more recent uh, conservatism, celebrated in a way that those of us who grew up in a Christian tradition with the, the injunction better to marry than to burn as, uh, as one, you know, about as enthusiastic an endorsement of married sex as you could get. Um, this is a very, very different view. The kind of, of course, of course there are different, you know, you can see that at different times that has been interpreted differently, but it certainly is possible to look at that Islamic tradition and see a much, much uh, richer celebration and a much less repressive um, view of sexuality in marriage. Absolutely. I mean, quite frankly, bad lovemaking is un-Islamic. Uh, and that was one of the great revelations to me in researching mm. this uh, this book is to go back through those uh, those those texts. And what I found most interesting in looking at the history, for example, is that medieval Christian commentators, when they wanted to uh, to uh, criticize Islam, would look at the sexuality of the religion, and in particular, they would say of the Prophet Muhammad, "How can this man possibly be a messenger of God? He is so sexed up." Uh, and that's because there was, it was not seen as incompatible to talk about the pleasures of the flesh and the needs of, of the faith. And when I go back and I talk about the history, I'm, let me be, make it quite clear, I'm not some sort of sexual Salafi here. I'm, I'm not suggesting that we go back to some mythical golden age of, 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 of sexual proto-liberation. Proto that's, that's not at all. But the reason I, I return to the history time and time again, and that it's not ancient history, as I said, it is within living memory, is that when the young people, I am hoping that my book will encourage, when they try to stand up and challenge the taboos and the conservatives, who are a much stronger voice still, despite their political mm -hmm. travails in Egypt, when they say that no, you are selling out to the West, these young people can turn around and say, well, that's simply not the case. And in fact, as some people have argued, as some historians have argued, and I quote them in the book, when Arabs were a confident and creative people, they were much more at ease in their mm -hmm. sexual skin. The two are related. And I'm hoping that Sex and the Citadel is a tiny contribution to moving that debate forward. And can you tell us about how female desire was seen in Islam? It's very interesting. The long history of Islam uh, recognizes the power of female desire. And in fact, what's most interesting is that female sexual desire is seen as much, much stronger than male desire. And it explains a lot, actually, uh, because there is this ongoing theme in the literature that uh, women's sexual desire is so strong, so much stronger than men's, that it needs to be controlled. Because if, if, if it isn't controlled, then there will be fitna, there will be disorder in, in society. And this is reflected in the long history of this Arabic erotica, which have endless chapters on uh, impotence and aphrodisiacs. And you fast forward to the 21st century and you find that Viagra, for example, has been acting as an alternative currency in Egypt. It's, um, it's fascinating, really. I was once uh, trying to get some uh, paperwork done and was confronting the full force of Egyptian bureaucracy without success, and yet I'd heard about a, a, a colleague who managed to get all his paperwork done in record time, and I was wondering, what is his secret? Well, his secret is a supply of Viagra, which he <laughs> buys from the States and then offers as an inducement for a speedy completion of paperwork. <laughs> Uh, and it, 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 impotence, it's a, it, 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 it can be a laughing matter. It is the butt of a thousand jokes, but it is a serious matter for, for men because it's tied up in what it is to be 
a man. If women have to prove their virginity on their wedding night, it's anxiety-making for men as well because they have to prove their virility. And quite frankly, given the levels of sexual education in Egypt and much of the Arab world, it is a miracle that they consummate these marriages <laughs> in, in, in the first place. And honeymoon impotence... Is, uh, is, is a real problem across the, across the Arab region. Um, and what I found most interesting is also looking at some of the sexual culture um, in, in Israel, although I don't touch on it in, in any great uh, detail in the book. But uh, there are many uh, academic papers written about honeymoon impotence among Orthodox Jewish populations uh, as, as well. So there are similar uh, constraints on, on men and women going into marriage in highly conservative religious environments. And in the case of Islam, the point is it doesn't have to be this way. We have a scope of discussion on so many issues. Uh, and the question is, why have we gravitated to the most narrow and confining interpretation when we could be having a much more open discussion? Mm. I think you mentioned in the book one case of a couple who took 10 days to get... Uh, to, 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 to consummate the marriage. Uh, and that was with, that was with a book. Um, ab, ab, absolutely. And um, I also talk in the book, for example, I mean, one of these, uh, uh, one of these uh, practices in order to uh, demonstrate uh, virginity is called dochla. And uh, you put um, a sheet under the bride on the wedding night, and uh, she is, uh, she, when she's deflowered, she bleeds into it, and this is a sign of her virginity. So I talk in the book of one, of one uh, friend, um, and she's a, she's a scientist, and she's an educated woman, and her father is a lawyer in Cairo. And her prospective groom was getting regular telephone calls from his future father-in-law saying, you must, you must contact us on the wedding night to tell us that our daughter has bled as expected. Remember, this is a question of family reputation. Anyway, the, the poor man, uh, the groom-to-be, became so anxious that night that he actually tried to take his bride to the cinema rather than the honeymoon suite to avoid the whole, the whole issue. At the end of the day, the only way he was able to consummate the marriage was to turn off his mobile phone. And uh, the next day, her parents turned up to, uh, to take the sheet of honor and show it to interested parties. You do feel it, it, it does really make you feel feel so sorry for them, but but, but you know the, the, the whole the whole thing about the, the the public nature of some of those. But you know things. the interesting thing is that yes, we look at it from the outside yeah. and say, oh, these poor women, and yet it's important to realize that women have agency; they have the ability to navigate in these really remarkable and innovative ways. So, in fact, some women use dakla as a tool of empowerment, in particular. Uh, women who are living in poorer parts mm. of, of Cairo who want to go out, want more freedom um, and the ability to travel perhaps for work, they will use Dakhla as almost a trade-off because they will say to their families, right, you are worried that if I travel far afield that something will happen to me that I will lose my honor. Well, I'm going uh, to sign up to Dakhla because that will prove to you that I have maintained the family honor. So they use this as a tool. Mm. Very similarly, one of the <laughs> interesting experiences I had in, um, in, in Cairo, it's hard for me to see you, but c can, if you've been to Cairo, can you, can you raise your hand, please? Can we have a, perhaps a little bit more light, a little bit more light in the house? Fantastic. So there's quite okay. a few. Yeah, that's that's very Half, impressive. Maybe even. Yeah. So so if you've been oh oh great god even more gosh uh, <laughs> <laughs> shocking. Um, so if you've been to Cairo downtown Cairo you may have seen some of the lingerie stores uh, lining its once grand boulevards and seriously it's it's hard to imagine places with more lurid more lurid underwear. I have uh, some friends who wrote a great book about, um, about lingerie in Damascus. It's called The Secret Life of Syrian Lingerie. Uh, and they have some wonderful photos, and they talk about uh, bras, for example, that if you press the cup, it plays Old, old MacDonald Had a Farm. <laughs> 
Uh, and, and I have to say, my, 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 my wonderful and, and long-suffering husband is in the audience, and he was uh, my fiancé when I started this book. And I know he was a little disappointed that I chose for uh, my trousseau a rather elegant and uh, a discreet form of lingerie, not uh, the chocolate G-strings uh, that are common in the region. But anyway, you go, into these, you go into these shops, and you find yourself shopping with women who are uh, mahagabat, they have Covered their head, and indeed, some are monokabat. They 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 are wearing um, they are wearing face veils, and you wonder why are these women who seem to adhere to such conservative codes of Islamic dress? How, how is it that they are buying such frankly tarty stuff? <laughs> and it was fascinating because, from a Western perspective. Often this lingerie is perceived as a tool of male oppression. It turns women into these frilly, frothy sex objects. But when I talked to my female friends, they didn't see this as a tool of exploitation. They saw it as a tool of empowerment. They said to me, Shireen, we can't articulate our sexual desire. We cannot say to our husbands, we want to have sex. This would be a shame. But I can wear this lingerie and I can signal my desire. So women today, as through the ages, find ways to subvert the, 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 the controls and the regulation which falls upon them. Mm. Can we talk about some of the more, um, I guess, the more personal aspect of going and talking to people and having these conversations? Um, I mean, you start out by saying that, you know, when you wanted to polish up some areas of your Arabic, that, in, 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 you know, the, the person who was helping you with that was kind of surprised by some of the vocabulary you wanted to acquire. As I said, if I were teaching someone English, I thought I'd, I think I'd be wondering if they wanted to know, you know, all the English first off for various sexual practices and sundry bits of, of, of reproductive anatomy. You've had, in, you know, for, you've gathered evidence um, of extraordinary, you know, things. I'm thinking, you know, of, of some of the stories that women have told you. What was the most difficult conversations that you had with, with people when you were talking to them about their situation? What's interesting is I never found it difficult in terms of awkwardness mm. uh, or, or reticence. Of course, of all the taboos around, uh, around sex, um, one would think it would be very difficult to engage people mm. in conversation. But my problem was not getting people to talk about sex. It was getting people to stop talking <laughs> Uh, about sex. And in Egypt, at least, the situation is that women talk with women all the time, it seems, about sexual matters, and men talk with men. The awkwardness comes in when you put men and women together, and then when you try to have a public discussion, whether mm. it's in the media or in, in, in government policy or in, or in schools. I think I, I had, so I didn't have awkward conversations, but I did have really heartrending Mm. conversations. Uh, I often have very, very funny conversations as well, which I recount in, in the book. Um, I know Woody Allen said, what did he say? Sex is the most uh, fun you can have without laughing. Well, certainly <laughs> talking about sex, you can't avoid really laughing, <laughs> laughing about these matters. But certainly, um, I mean, Faiza's story was among the most uh, difficult I, I heard. Uh, but there is another young woman I met, um, and her name is Amani, and uh, she lives in the conservative south of, of Egypt. And she uh, fell in love with, um, with a young man whom she wanted to marry. And they went through the usual motions. He came with his family to meet her family. But her family refused him. And the reason for that was largely because, unusually, uh, Amani is the main breadwinner of her, her family. And I say unusually because although women are increasingly educated across the Arab region, and that includes Egypt, it's very hard to get a job. Only about 25% of women are, are working. But anyway, she had, a, she had a job, and one of the concerns her, her family had was that if she were to marry, the money she gives to them would drain to the new couple. And so after years of trying to persuade her family to agree, she and her, um, her, her fiancé decided to take matters into their own hands, and they went to Cairo in the wake of the uprising, and they had what is called an Orphi marriage. 
we have a lot of unofficial forms of marriage in uh, in Islam and Orphi marriage um, is 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 one of these in Egypt and it's a source of tremendous um, social anxiety and and controversy in uh, in Egypt but in in, in in talking to Amani she was really really torn um, and and I asked her Amani you're in your you're in your 20s you're economically um, uh, viable why do you not just marry your uh, fiance and, and be done with it and and she said to me that uh, uh, I just can't I just can't do that because it's it's not just a question of my honor it's a question of my father my father is a great man in the mosque what would people say of him if uh, if they were to find out that he has what she called an impolite girl by by which she means disobedient and if I can just read you um, a bit about uh, what she said. Uh, like many young women I've met, Amani is caught between defiance and regret. She is quietly furious with her parents for driving her to this situation, but she's also torn by guilt. I am now deceiving my family, she told me sadly. My family trust me, and I am using their trust not in a good way. I used to be so honest all the time. I used to tell them everything that was happening in my life, but this thing I cannot say. Amani's reticence is compounded by the fact that she no longer believes that her earthly marriage is Islamically sound. I read on the internet, some people say it is 100% halal, some people say it's 20% halal. I don't know. So I told Hossam, who's her uh, husband, uh, we need to stop doing uh, anything altogether that means having sex, because maybe what we did is haram. Uh, I don't like to continue in haram, forbidden. I, I have to feed poor people. I have to pray a lot. I have to go to Mecca. Maybe God will forgive me. Amani had few hopes that her family would come round or that Hossam would find a job in Egypt's struggling economy. I don't like to think what's going to happen in the future. I don't like to make myself sad. I put my faith in God, she said. Amani spoke as if the uprising had already passed her by too late to make any difference to her life. But she had high hopes that any daughter of hers would one day benefit, and she was clear on what she as a mother would do. I will never give something to my kids that makes me hard with my family. I hurt a lot from my family because they are thinking in a different way, she said to me, her voice breaking. But I will be able to understand my daughter, what she is thinking, because I am that experience before I will let her choose the person that her heart chooses and that her feelings choose. And that, of course, is the big question in Egypt moving forward. Will young people have the ability to make that change both in their personal but also in broader public life? And in some ways that story illustrates the fact that it comes down to that fundamental, seemingly unchangeable patriarchal structure, the, the father as the head of the family, and that until that is changed to some degree, um, no matter how much incremental change happens, it will be very hard um, to see real prospects of that kind of greater freedom. And we've had glimmers of change, certainly during the uprisings, mm. both against Mubarak and also uh, against uh, uh, Morsi. We saw young people in the lead. And, and I, I spoke to an older generation. And, you know, older people are having a very hard time dealing with the upheaval in Egypt. And they spoke with, with great respect and admiration for young people whom they had basically written off as layabouts and too busy with their PlayStations to really care much uh, about the future of Egypt. And they spoke with great admiration. Now, the problem is translating those moments of revelation into everyday reality. And we are very far from that in, in the Arab world today. Thank you to Shireen Ofeki. Thank you. And thank you, Anne. Thank you.